Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. As always, you can follow me on LinkedIn or on Twitter, and you can listen to episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen, plus see all the creative work on our website. It's uh, onstrategyshowcase.com. Now, I have an exciting initiative I wanted to share and announce today. Uh, Work and I have been talking recently, and I've agreed to partner with them to produce a 12-episode series featuring the winners of the 2020 Work Marketing Effectiveness Awards. The series won't appear here on my site, but on Work's. And the fun part is that Work has agreed to make all of that content free to everybody. So um, the awards are being judged right now, and I'll start producing episodes once the winners are selected. And I'm really excited about it. It's uh, It might be a little bit of a different format to what I do here. We're still working through the details, and that'll be kind of cool to explore some new things, some new features. Uh, I'll share more information on that as we get closer to the release dates, which I think will be sort of June, July. Uh, that said, I also want to kind of under underscore the point that this show isn't just about award winners. If you've ever entered a show, if you've ever judged a show, you can certainly, you certainly quickly become aware that the difference between a winner and uh, on one that did not win can be a very razor thin margin. So I am totally open to hearing about a case uh, and considering it for this show. If you have something fun, cool, that's not, not just fun, but something that's got strong strategic underpinnings and has been a really effective example of success in any aspect of marketing, do let me know because I'm, I'm always sort of scouring around looking for new things, whether it's on LinkedIn or in my inbox. So shoot me a, uh, shoot me a message at hello at onstrategyshowcase.com, hello at onstrategyshowcase.com. Uh, that would be great to hear. Okay, back to today's show. So uh, it's important to note before we start with this interview that the conversation today is not about cost-cutting your way to profit. Uh, It's not about uh, a deep dive into technology and analytics. Uh, If if that's what you think this show is, I think you'll be sorely disappointed. What it is about, it's about being able to sort of make a case, a compelling business case for marketing investment. It's basically about the idea of putting theory into practice at scale. In other words, kind of the holy grail for all of us strategists and and professionals in this industry. The unfortunate thing we've all experienced is that that for many small, mid-sized and large businesses, marketing's value is questioned. Um, You know, is it just an expense? Can it really generate game-changing sales and revenue? Does all this science and creativity really work? And we've all heard those dismissive arguments against better budgets. So this case is how Diageo put theory into practice at scale and building a business case for efficiency, effectiveness, and investment. So that dimension, I think, is really important for us all to understand uh, how this how this conversation is structured. So Diageo is home to iconic brands that we're all familiar with, Guinness, with Johnny Walker, with Bailey's. In, in fact, they have uh, they have uh, 200 brands in 180 markets around the world. In 2016, their global consumer planning director, Andrew Gagan, uh, was given the goal of achieving 100 million pounds over three years in incremental profit from marketing. And this was part of a larger 500 million pound initiative within Diageo. So this 100 million was for marketing alone. So this is a conversation about his team's answer to that brief and how they more than doubled their goal. At the center is what they created, which was a, a web-based tool they call Catalyst. It's Diageo's marketing modeling system with econometrics underpinning it. We, uh, Andrew and I, talk about the steps taken 
to develop and operationalize it. Uh, this case was a gold IPA effectiveness award winner in 2020 for best new learning and best use of data, best use of data. Um, one last thing I wanted to point out, we opened the conversation talking about the role of internal brand planners inside Diageo and the implication for planners at agencies. I have um, I've had many Diageo planners, well, many, I've had three, so... I've had three uh, uh, different Diageo planners on this show, and uh, the conversations have been really fantastic. Uh, these are legit planners. Uh, these are not just people who are doing research. These are terrific planners that would be at any of the best agencies in the world. And it's important to hear what the implications are when that's the case on the client side, because it sort of shifts what the role of the planner on the agency side needs to be. And I think it's an important conversation to hear. So without further ado, this is Andrew Gagan, Global Consumer Planning Director at Diageo. He basically is the uh, the uh, head of all internal planners across Diageo. It's a terrific conversation about Catalyst. Enjoy. Welcome, Andrew. Great to have you on the show. And uh, I've had the pleasure of having a number of the global brand managers from Diageo on. Um, Stephen O'Kelly, uh, we had him on for uh, Smirnoff. We've had Bailey's on. We've had Guinness on. So it's it's been really great to have various brands on here and to kind of discover how strong they are as marketing um, as they are as marketing brands. And I think that's kind of key to how we talk about uh, this. How we kind of think about this conversation today because. What we're talking about here is increasing profit and performance, but it is not in the sacrifice of great ideas. And And I think uh, Diageo brands and the organization have proven that they value creativity. So for an audience who may be thinking, oh, it's just about cutting costs, it really isn't that. And so I think that's an important thing to point out from the get-go. But, but let's start, can you, by kind of giving us a sense of, of Diageo and, uh, and its scope and its geographic reach. Can you tell us a little bit about it for those who aren't familiar? Of course I can, Fergus, and, and thank you so much for having me. And, and you're absolutely right. This is a story about brands and about powering them with the benefits that come from good data and creativity. And, and Diageo is a business where the world's largest total beverage alcohol company were present in every region across the world and have over 200 brands. And those brands are sold in over 180 countries, uh, most of which are uh, distributor markets, but at least 60 of those we've got a direct presence. Um, so it's a complex multi-market business with 28,000 people of whom 1,200 are, are working in, in marketing on those brands. Um, and we're present in all kinds of categories, beer, scotch, gin, vodka, tequila, rum, as well as local spirits, cachaça, cane spirits, mezcal. And I'm sure, I hope anyway, your listeners are familiar with brands like Johnny Walker, Guinness, Smirnoff, Captain Morgan, Baileys and, and Tanqueray. Yeah, it is It is really extraordinary because not only, and I didn't know this until my first interview, uh, an episode with on Guinness, um, where, where I just, I discovered that uh, Diageo not only has a great, uh, um, puts a great priority on, on creativity, but I think as a way of getting to that, it is one of the first organizations that I had heard of that had uh, enterprise-wide, had their own internal planners. Yes. And, and then their, their planners as legit as any planner from any great agency 
uh, around the world. Um, what, what was the what was the thinking originally behind that? I think it started in the in the nineties. But uh, tell That's me right. about the role of the planner internally versus what we might think of the role as a planner in an agency. That's right. I, I, funnily enough, it was one of the uh, big choices that Diageo made when it came together twenty three years ago. My uh, predecessor in this role, uh, a gentleman called Michael Harvey decided to create an internal planning function, initially in the mold of an agency planner, but ultimately, as things have uh, progressed over time and the types of growth drivers that we need to create have become much broader, the role of the planner has become much more holistic. Agency footprint on brands has become much more broader. So the role has really evolved. and, And today, I talk about it as leading the token business with ideas and insights that sell more. So the planner should be right at the front, inspiring the business with understanding of the opportunities for growth and enabling them using really deep uh, understanding of consumers and culture to know how to unlock those opportunities on the brands, on the portfolio, and to translate that right through into you know consumer-facing work, be it you know, on a billboard, on television, in a bar. So we really believe actually in in taking deep ownership of our brand strategy through that lens of the consumer and culture um, as a a source of advantage actually versus many of our branded competitors. So when you you look at the role then or what that allows the agency planner to focus on, is it more of a is the agency planner, and I'm thinking about in the ad agency, not the media agency, yeah. is, is that role, um, is that role, do you require something different from that planner or what do you expect them to bring to the table? Yeah, when it works best, um, it works because we work collaboratively together. So we know, if you like, the business objectives better than the agency planner will. The agency planner will be typically uh, more familiar and, and more in the depths of, of creative strategy. So we bring and work on with them brand strategy, but we enable that, those things to come really together so you get the best of both worlds. I think sometimes from agencies, inevitably they're focused on what it is that they're creating for the brand or the business. So it can be very much focused on on creative rather than on the brand holistically. So having someone in-house who's able to really think about um, you, you know, the, the opportunities and challenges the brand needs to deal with and the consumer journey um, is really helpful in ensuring that the sum total of everything that we produce on a brand is really consistent, fresh, and distinctive, and in service of those long-term ambitions that we have for growth. But, you know, one of the aspects that we're going to talk about when we talk about uh, this, this project is uh, culture. And yeah. internal culture, and I'm I'm um, I'm curious. And just one last question about planners, agency planners, mm-hmm. because I my interpretation when I hear when I hear you explain the role of planners, and I've heard your planners explain their role. My first thought was, oh my god, that must that almost goes counter to what our industry of planning, from an agency perspective, uh, teaches us our role should be. And I wonder, have you found that it creates friction, um, even if it's just uh, bruised egos? Are, are, are people struggling sometimes when they initially work with Diageo planners to sort of figure out what their role is now that they're, they're facing off against a planner on, your, on the brand side that is so strong? You might, you might have to ask some of our 
agency planners that, but I would <laughs> I would I would say that one of the strengths is that we work really well with them and recognize that great work comes from collaboration. And you know, we have a I guess a, a total business lens and more of an accountability for for the outcomes of everything that we do on a brand. So um you know that drives us more than perhaps an agency planner that that might be um you know i guess more driven by the uh, the innovativeness of the creative and and its contribution to culture not not to say that we don't care about those things we care enormously about those things we recognize how valuable they are for growth um but no i, I mean in general i think certainly if i think when i've been um a global brand planner on on some of our brands like Guinness um the partnership i would have had with amv bbdo for example was phenomenal it was it was one of i think shared respect and and driving to better outcomes and i guess sometimes when you're creating work on a brand i think tension managed well is actually one of the things that brings magic so let's talk about where we uh the, the project that we're that we're here to discuss, which is, I don't know how you would want to label it. I mean, I'm sure you have a term for it. There's various components to it, and we're going to get into it. But let's, let's first, let me just ask you how you, how you define this system, this tool, and, and then let's talk about the, the, um, the reason it was initially developed. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, Try, trying to label what we've done. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, listen, I think about everything almost as a, a culture problem or a culture opportunity. And I think this is one of those. So there are, you know, we'll talk about the components of it, but ultimately it was about creating a culture in which we could drive better effective marketing from the suite of brands that we have. But the origins of the pro project do lie in a Diageo business-wide initiative, which started in about 2016. So if you cast your mind back to, to then it was a time when I think businesses felt really significant pressure from economic uncertainty and low growth, particularly in, in consumer sectors. And a lot of companies, very big consumer goods companies, were under pressure and focusing on short-term cost savings. And in and at that time, Diageo did something quite bold in announcing that it was going to deliver 500 million pounds in productivity with the aim of reinvesting two-thirds of that money back into the business, which was a slightly different path from what other big consumer businesses were, were doing at the time. And marketing was tasked, or rather yours truly was tasked, in delivering a share of that. And that was both in terms of eliminating some of the waste, so some of the ineffective spend that we had within our, our marketing budget. But most importantly, we made a, con a commitment to contribute about 100 million pounds incremental profit on top of what we already delivered from our brand marketing during the two year period um, that that uh, promise to the external world was going to be uh, satisfied. And I think for me, that although there's a, this big business context, it also enabled me to scratch a couple of itches. So I, I always think, Having the cover of a good business objective is a good excuse to think about <laughs> what you can what you can achieve. Right. And I think there were, there were two things. One was that we had some fantastic measurement and learning in in pockets of the business where we developed analytics. And so I imagined that this was an opportunity that we could scale some of that across the world, and it, we could shift it from being a bit of a specialism in some of our more developed markets into being something that was really 
democratized and that our marketers could perhaps use every day. And then the other itch, and this is, I guess, where I got a bit of my personal motivation in it, was about putting some of the salient brand building theory into practice. And, you know, if you think in the last kind of decade, there's been so many great things out there from uh, Les Binet and Peter Field from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. But a lot of it is based on observation of big data sets. It's very persuasive, but it doesn't tell you how to do it in practice on brands in different markets at different stages and, and how to achieve more predictable, repeatable results. And so... As somebody who alongside this work is the custodian of something we call the Diageo way of brand building, which is our holistic model for brand building across the whole organization. It has theory and best practice for strategy planning and execution, for example. Um, this also felt like an opportunity for me to, to refine and almost encode some of that theory into the everyday practices that might to lead, lead to those uh, more predictable positive results on more brands in our organization more of the time. But if you were, so you were, you were charged with finding or discovering or returning an extra 100 million pounds. And so you, you had to make a bet. And I think intuitively or instinctively, at least what, what we hear about more, more commonly is the instinct to cut Yes. And this is the thing that, that surprised me, and I was delighted to see it in terms of how this all turned out. Um, there was some cutting, as you say, there was some obvious efficiencies that, that could be realized, but you placed a bet on something that you had no idea if it would actually return on investment. That's is right. That, is that fair to say? And then, and then what went into that decision? Because that's a ballsy decision to make. It is, isn't it? I guess the theory is out there. People believe intellectually that investment drives growth i think one of the problems that uh, was there for me to overcome and that this work did was to prove it to provide the evidence that would enable people to have confidence in how those investments would would pay off and, and actually there's a there's a theme here or rather marketing spend is fairly unique on on the pnl because for most of the things that you spend, they're either clearly a cost or you can see the benefits fairly quickly. Whereas if you think about the money you spend on marketing, you sp let's say you spend £100. Uh, within uh, the first couple of months of spending that, you immediately, without question, lose half that money. And if you've deployed it well, in the next kind of you know three to nine months, you actually will double or treble the money that you initially put down. But those returns, those longer term returns are kind of difficult to see. And that means it's really hard for a business or any business that is more used to seeing the certainty of investing money with, with you know, clear returns they can see in their P&L. So part of this was about evidence, getting the evidence there that would enable people to be confident in increasing their spend and actually, one of though we didn't set out to do this, one of the positive benefits that we've had is that we've been able to make the case in certain scale markets like the US and on certain brands like Bailey's um, for really radically increased investment. And we've been able to demonstrate where we should spend that money, how it is likely to return and when. And then we've been able to track that and be and go back to the business and say, look, actually, what we what we predicted would happen has has, has largely come true. 
which, you know, otherwise, if you think, as I said, you, you spend that money and immediately lose half of it. Um, that doesn't seem like a that doesn't seem like a good use of money initially um, or a good sell. So when, when you hear conversations around performance marketing versus brand marketing, mm. is is that is that context even relevant to what you've experienced in the real world? I think, I mean, we're in a position where we are using um, data much as, as happens in performance uh, marketing at the kind of nth degree, uh, but not to the not to the degree that retailers are and 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 people in in companies that are far more data rich than we are. As an alcohol business, we are quite removed um, from some of our customers. Um, for legal reasons, actually, in the US, for example, we, because of the, the system that is that is in place, um, meaning if you manufacture, you can't distribute. If you distribute, you can't sell. So I think we've managed to avoid, actually, some of what I understand the pitfalls of performance marketing are from, from peers and colleagues in other industries, which is very driven by data, very short-termist, and, and, and not really able to bring judgment and um, you know, strategy to bear on those things. Um, so I, I do think we we kind of we've never really talked marketing. We've talked about marketing with precision and precision marketing, and wanting to really combine uh, magic and measurement or, or rigor and creativity, and, and bring sort of strategy and execution closer together and integrate them, rather than thinking that creativity is in opposition to you know, a, a data and, and, and so on. So in, in a sense, maybe we've gone down a slightly different path from, from many businesses that have really embraced performance uh, marketing as a day-to-day -day activity. So when you, when, you look at, when you look at Diageo as an organization, as a sales organization, as a marketing organization, it's hard, it's hard to believe that there wasn't at least some sort of an attempt to do something like this. Yeah. Uh, so, so was there a foundation and at least an attempt that you were able to build upon, or were you looking at a clean sheet of paper? Depending on where we were in the world, um, there were the uh, beginnings of some of this stuff. So in the US and in Europe, we had um, some pretty amazing modeling. And actually, we had some specialist people who were really great at this stuff. Um, but they were on the side, if you like. They weren't right in the middle of day-to-day -day decisions. So what often happens with analytics is they're not there at the moment where the millions of micro decisions get made or necessarily where the strategic decisions get made. So, so partly in, in environments where we had a lot of these tools and we had really good practices, it was about, I guess, democratizing them. It was about weaving them into the day-to-day -day of, of people's workflow. And then in other markets where people often believe that they weren't data rich enough to be able to do these things, it was about uh, looking at what data we had, understanding what you know what tools we had and and what gaps there were. And, and so part of this work has been to put uh, models in. We currently are running models on about um, brands accounting for about eighty five percent of our sales. And they're in everywhere from you know Nigeria to Cameroon to Costa Rica, um, and those are in many cases were environments where people had never done econometric modeling or marketing mix modeling before, and so there were challenges to overcome there in uh, in enabling people to understand 
what it was and how to use it and and to 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 really uh, um, trust it and and think of it as a tool for making better future decisions versus understanding the impact of what you've done in the past. So it was a combination. It was taking um, things that we already did well, but thinking about how to democratize them and use them differently and empower them with uh, technology. And also it was about uh, scaling those things and putting them into environments where hitherto we hadn't been able to take advantage of those things. What's great about this is it appears that you've created a system that delivers on the promise of technology and the promise of data. And I think for probably the last couple of decades, marketers have struggled with this. And it's, it's, always, it's always been, I think, extremely difficult to figure out, particularly with a large enterprise, how to pull this off. Yes. And, and I think it comes down to, it comes down to the fact that you're going to have, you're going to have data that exists uh, you're going to have data that doesn't yet exist. And then you have to figure out a way to create an interface that's that's usable and that people will want to interact with and that they trust and they think is credible when you bring together all of these various data points and, and inputs. Um, because you're you're dealing you're dealing with probably 10 to 12 plus different dimensions of data and insight that are being inputted into this tool that then people have to trust to make the right decisions for them. Um, before we get into the sell-in process with this, uh, is that a fair way of describing some of the, the challenges that you faced in trying to create this sort of centralized market modeling and, and marketing planning tool, right? That, that, your, that your media agencies have to interface with, that your yeah. brand managers have to face, your strategists need to interface with, that finance needs to interface with. I mean, it's, it's, I mean it, it seems that the biggest challenge would be trust. Yes. I mean, listen, absolutely. I think you've, you've really d- described it really well. Rather than being led by data and technology, we were led by what's the, a bit like a marketing plan. <laughs> What's the business objective? Then what's the marketing objective that delivers that? And then to really think about what the problems are that you need to overcome and to design something that is ultimately as simple as it can be and therefore as usable as it can be, while still recognizing that there are, you know, specialist components and elements to it. And then it really is about how you create a culture around that where people feel empowered they know what it's transparent there are no black boxes they know what's going on and that you deal with some of the potential issues that people might have where they might feel that um, uh, data is overriding judgment where brand building is not you know not not the the, uh, craft that it has typically been and they might feel that the analytics are rear view rather than kind of necessarily predictive of the future. So it's absolutely right to say that this was something that required us to think about where it sat within the user, the kind of marketer's experience of of work, how we would make them feel confident about it, and then also how we would make senior leaders feel confident about the recommendations that were coming out of it and and realising it was just a point of view. Um, you know, ultimately, this isn't about reducing things down to an algorithm. It's about making better informed decisions. But that still means you need judgment, great strategy and 
to be able to break the model and experiment and to do different things to continue to learn as you progress with with what you're doing on the ground. So is it is it thought about, Andrew, as being a tool that sort of determines what you do, or is it a tool that assists you? It's it's one component in you as a as a as an owner of a brand having to make a decision. Yeah, it's 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 definitely about assisting rather than insisting. Because of course, what data doesn't know is what the intention is of the organization or the market. It doesn't know what the context is. Um, it, it, it can't be uh, all powerful. So it is a tool to aid decisions that requires really smart, thoughtful people. Um, it can't just tell you an answer and tell you what to do. Um, it, well, I mean, it could. <laughs> but um, that's not what we wanted it to be and, and, and how we thought it would uh, motivate people to, to want to use it and interact with it. Could you give us like a one-minute or two-minute overview of the user experience? If you put your brand, and I don't know whose experience we should look at it through which lens, but maybe yeah. it's the brand manager. Um, they uh, Tell us about their experience. When are they using it? And then and what are they learning from it? Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, there are, there are different modules to this. And <clears throat> in fact, there are now, uh, as we've extended it over time, there are four parts to it. But those two core parts that I've talked about, the strategic module, which is about portfolio allocation and the growth driver module, they've got different audiences, actually. The portfolio piece is meant to be for a market leadership team, so where the marketing director or a category director will be working with finance and, and the general manager to inform resource allocation for the next for the year ahead and then checking you know, probably six months in as to whether those assumptions on how what the market would play out as would uh, uh, right for the brand manager the it's the growth driver module and that really is a it's a dynamic planning tool that enables them to um, in real time apply uh, the benefits of econometrics or marketing mix modeling and other analytics to the choices that they make. So imagine in the course of a year, you probably do your annual brand planning, which we call marketing business planning. Let's say for argument's sake, that's in January. That's when they would do a full and deep strategic review. And at the end of that, they'd have a plan, uh, uh, which was a not just a media plan, but a, a plan against all of the activities they were going to do. To do. And they can build that in the Catalyst environment. The tool is called Marketing Catalyst. And because it has the analytics there, it will pressure test the likely gross profit outcomes, both in terms of short-term and long-term and other measures. And it might look sufficient to deliver, their budget might be sufficient to deliver the desired outcome that their brand needs to contribute to its market, or it might not be. And that's when they can actually start to play around and work out how they would optimize that plan to drive to drive better better results and returns and also it provokes them to think about um, the effectiveness of different parts of their mix how effective their their creative is and and so on so the range of things that it it might provoke could be anything from a reappraisal of, of the creative strategy right through to for a brand that is really singing that's already working it might be about really extracting you know, 5% more uh, incremental benefit from making smarter media choices, for example. 
And then if you look at, if you look at creativity, you talked about creative mm. ideas. Is there, is there a sort of a, a single number score or a certain KPI in terms of tested create, create uh, testing of creative, creative ideas that is then fed into the tool or is there, or, or, or I suppose my question is how is a creative idea judged yes. in advance of it being in market? It's a really good question because actually we wanted this to work in sympathy with our understanding of, of what great creative is. And I guess great creative for us is the kind of work that obviously moves consumers and gets them to, to act. And we have, we've developed tools, certainly which are, are relevant for our industry, that really help us understand what some of those dimensions are. So in our data sets, we can see that there is a really strong correlation actually between the creative that beats some of the uh, KPIs uh, in, in kind of creative testing and, and another work and ROI. So there is a link there. And we know that that link generally is about ensuring that our creative is really attention grabbing, that it's very well branded, um, that it uh, actually is provoking an emotional response that people you know it makes people feel and also that it's it's easy to understand and follow what the kind of message is and, and that's going on and there are a couple of other dimensions but because we're able to overlay um, how a creative performs with ROI um, we're getting much better at um, informing the future direction or helping nurture ideas so that they are more often displaying the characteristics of, 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 of what great creativity is. And there's definitely a tension there. Um, so we, you have to work really carefully with that, with agency partners, so it does not sound like a formula, because clearly um, how you achieve those things is, is not simply about you know, making sure that there are, there are lots of products in shot and, and so on. We believe really deeply in the power of creative ideas to unlock the opportunities and challenges that we have. So that's something where you need to use the analytics and the information that you have with real sensitivity. And that's where, you know, bringing uh, uh, the, if you like, the magic and the science together um, with real skill becomes important. It's, it's very easy to um, assume that those two things, that measurement and uh, creativity can be in opposition to them. But if you work sensitively, you can really bring them together and create a, a, a learning mindset. Um, and I think it, you would have heard this a lot, for example, in the, uh, the uh, interviews you did on Guinness, because a lot of the Guinness story is about having a strategy, uh, doing work that didn't initially deliver against that strategy, but having the courage to, to learn and pour over uh, kind of the understanding that we had from consumer responses and and and, and improve until we started to really crack it. So yeah. it is about using using these things to to help inform, uh, rather than you know um, just kind of throwing things out there and hope they work. Or as often happens, is using measurement as a really blunt tool to evaluate and say whether something's good or bad, which you know we know can be the enemy of creativity. 
So my, my sense is that the, the user experience is one, as, as I've read some of the background on this, that the user experience is one where I'm able to do market modeling and I can look at various scenarios, levels of investment. Yeah. I can look at profitability. I can look at, I can look at so many different dimensions. Um, so, so that's at the heart of the user experience is this sort of scenario planning. A yeah. game, it's like a game, gamified system that's, that's got a very legit back, back end on it, right? Yes. Right. So you, when, you, when you initially come up with this idea, we, we've talked about earlier about the bravery of it. Um, I got to assume that you had to tread very carefully in how you rolled it out. So how did you or who did you begin the process of socializing this idea with? And what did you have to socialize? Was it a prototype? Was it just an idea? Was it a conversation? How did it start yeah. off? Yeah, I mean, listen, this is, I think this is, was a really critical part of the story. And um, I spent a lot of time socializing this with our executive, with the general manager population, as well as our marketing leadership team, which of which I'm a part. And um, I had a, it's interesting, as I look back, it's often easy with hindsight to say, and we've, you know, we succeeded and wasn't that easy, it wasn't. Um, because there are, of course, lots of barriers to overcome. And at the time, as I was really scoping this out, I didn't entirely know the detail of what, of what it would look like. So I think I've referred to some of these areas of pockets of resistance already, but you know, uh, decision-making becoming overly automated or, or data-driven, leaving no room for strategy and, and creativity was one area, being backward-looking. Um, and then there was something, a job to be done on ensuring that everybody's understanding of how marketing as an investment works um, was really, really clear. So we're a brand-focused company, but I still needed to recognize different levels of understanding within marketing, finance community, uh, with investors who we shared this with, as well as really understanding the, the marketers in day-to-day -day and, uh, and what their needs would be. Um, so, so I think spending time on that was really important. And then the other critical dimension was to work with markets in a pilot phase so that we knew what we were trying to achieve conceptually, but we had to work with markets in order to develop something that would actually fit within the workflow of how they did marketing and that would be fit for a developed market, which was typically data rich as well as a developing market, which hadn't got the benefit of using these things in the past. So I think we used Europe and a couple of developing markets in that pilot phase to really design prototype. And once we'd got that prototype and, and kind of approved it, that's when we went about scaling and, and rolling it up. Um, but there was a lot of hard to do in getting people confident uh, in, in the approach we were taking. Uh, another really important part of the success here was that business contact. So we had a uh, financial uh, objective to deliver, which was pretty significant. And the general managers all had a share of that. So that was motivating to them to get behind this project, particularly when Things were challenging, and, and and we were, you know, it was un, unclear how we were going to overcome certain obstacles because that kept people 
um, focused on making it success and overcoming the you know some of the issues we had, particularly with data um, as we went. Um, so I, I think for any change program, those are some of the the really key learnings about understanding audience, where they are now, how you want to shift their attitude, um, really working with the people who are going to be the users of this. I mean, as I hear myself speak, I'm describing how you go about marketing. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so in a sense, it's, it's not hugely different from, from what our day jobs should be when we're thinking about, you know, how to make our brands attractive to consumers and, and get them to choose us and spend their hard-earned cash on us versus something else. So I think for the audience, it's important to point out that this started in 2016, and this was a three-year goal to, to reach this this uh, 100, uh, 100 million pound uh, increase in profitability to the business through through marketing. This is this is marketing share uh, of a of a larger uh, uh, of a larger goal, financial yeah. goal. So, um, was year one uh, pilot testing? Yes, year one was establishing proof of concept, pilot testing, and then starting to roll out. And uh, year two was actually when we really started to to scale this, um, and then obviously year year three was uh, really getting getting it moving. So in year two, we spent a lot of time on training and building capability, and alongside enabling people to use the tool and, and understand what it was for, and so on. So yeah, it was a it took it took a, a little bit of time to get it up and and running and established. When you think about it, and you you talk you touched on it earlier, which is the idea that the business managers, the business owners by brand, they had a vested interest in cooperating because that's not necessarily the case uh, for the experience of others that I've heard about trying to do something similar to this, because it's thought of as being uh, owned by some other department yes. with no P and L link to me. Therefore. I got my business to run, leave me alone. Come back and tell me when something is actually working and proving itself. Um, so so it's so they had sort of you guys had addressed that by having a sort of a collective PL motivation yes. for getting this up and running. But I've also got to guess that you experienced some uh pushback, some resistance. Can you can you share an example or two of of kind of common things that you would get pushback on you do reach pockets of resistance in some of the markets that had you know existing practices they were like but we're fine we're already doing this and right we, we don't we don't need to do anything differently and then of course in in other parts of the world where we didn't have the benefit of, of those analytics you know it was oh well the data doesn't exist and um you know that won't work here, and and it won't be accurate, and, and so on. And so it was to to overcome a lot of these things was about patiently working through them with people. So working to de to develop this with markets was absolutely critical because those markets would um, shape it in a way which was really reflective of of the day to day needs of of their marketing people. And through training and capability and and, uh, and other materials, we were able to build confidence in, if you like, the theory that underpinned this, as well as some of the kind of you know the uh, practical things on 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 the models, and you know spend time with people and 
and help them understand and listen to them uh, as to, to what they were concerned with. And so we spent, I think, in particularly once we got the proof of concept built, as I say, we spent, uh, my team and I spent a year in each market face-to-face, working with people, training them, listening to them. And, and of course, you know, some markets have, and some marketers have absolutely um, warmed to this. And of course, there are other marketers who, you know, who, who are less comfortable with, you know, with it. So it's just recognizing the different responses and, and being sympathetic to them. So when, when, we look at, when we look at developing markets or less developed markets, where um, you're in a category where there is, from a legal perspective, you may not necessarily have eyes on transaction data. Yeah. Um, how do you create a proxy for that? Is it, it, How do you deal with that issue, which seems to be an issue that um, is a challenge for most categories? You know, in some parts of the world, you've got um, very detailed um, skew level, weekly data with great channel coverage. In other parts of the world, the frequency of that is is much lower and the coverage and, and the quality. So what we had to tackle really in some of those countries was how to get an effective model when the quality of the data is less good. And uh, we tackled that in a number of different ways. One way was, of course, to understand the quality of the underlying data and to work over a couple of years to improve that so that we could have better you know, better inputs and therefore better outputs. And then the other thing which our, some of our, our partners did brilliantly was to be more innovative and think about how they could achieve uh, better quality models um, within that data environment that would have a degree of kind of accuracy and predictability. And, and clearly there's a, there's going to be a big, um, variance. So, you know, if I think about some of our models in, in North America, they're predictive to within, you know, a couple of decimal uh, decimal points over a you know period of 12 months. They're highly predictive. We don't have that level of accuracy in some of our emerging markets, but we've got a good level of accuracy and, and we've improved it over time. And, and actually, as, uh, in this work, we've, some of the breakthroughs has been to have you know, world standard modeling in markets like Uganda and Ethiopia and Cameroon, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which are environments in which um, these analytic approaches had never been undertaken, I think, by by any uh, client company before. We've talked about what I believe is one of the big buckets in terms of how you guys or how you yourself have decided to label this, which was sort of sort of two buckets. One is marketing catalyst. And the other is creative sparks. And I think marketing catalyst is more of what we've been talking about, yeah. which is the internal organization's experience with the system. Um, then there's there's creative sparks. So you guys have got 200 brands, 180 markets. Lord knows how many creative partners you have yeah. around the world. And um, we are, as agencies and as marketing people, and particularly as strategists, very uh, ego-driven people and opinionated people. Um, I'm super curious how you then took this system to the uh, to the agency side, and this is the media agency as well as the creative agencies. Well, that's right. um, 
Tell, tell us about that because uh, I can only imagine the backroom uh, curses that were thrown your way when that was first. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and it depends. You know, the uh, different parts of it in, interact in the different ways. It's really only the um, the media agency actually that gets involved because the output of Marketing Catalyst is a plan in effect. So that's a big piece of interface with them. But you're right. It, from the point of view of creative development, um, you know, no, no creative agency wants to be handed a, a report with some numbers on that tells them tells them how things are going. Um, but but actually, the, the creative sparks bit was a really important ingredient. And as I, as I think I said at the beginning, I thought we thought about this as a problem of culture and how you create a culture which was able to you know, implement best in-class brand building approaches at scale. And of course, and alongside the use of analytics, the area of which I think I identified as being most important was creativity. And so Creative Sparks was a response to that and to recognize that we needed to create balance so that we didn't inadvertently tip into being a business that was overly led by data but that still recognize the real importance of great strategic thinking, insights, uh, media, uh, great briefs and briefings. So I think the first uh, intent of that whole Creative Sparks program was to enable us to be better clients and to have a bit of a more sensitive grasp of what it takes to partner with agencies to create, sustain and keep fresh effective creative work on brands for multiple years and actually i enrolled our agencies in helping us refine and codify critical pieces of of that puzzle and to tell us in fact we we still survey them uh, each year where we could be doing better against some of those critical components and i also recognize what you said about the need to take some of our agencies on on a journey about measurement because it can be a thing of pride um, to not be uh, influenced by measurement and to to see particularly evaluative forms of of research as as an affront to to creativity to be honest many of our partners in in the agency world are already brilliant at um but uh, creating that balance so yeah, i think right. you will have heard it in uh in the guinness and the bailey's story and probably the smirnoff story actually that that you had recounted to you the importance of having a learning mindset um in being open to improvements um and you know and being i guess a bit humble and objective about our own work versus feeling we have to constantly defend and, and sell in how brilliant it is. And, and, and I do think that mindset piece, which I think we share with, with our, our closest partners, has been important. So I don't think we work with, with people who, who, who don't want to learn, who don't see that you know, uh, research and data inputs can, can be valuable to them, as long as, of course, they're used in a sensitive, collaborative way. And I, so I do think, again, it's the how you create a system and a culture which uses these things with objectivity to create a better outcome that enables us to overcome a little bit of our own egos and, and some of the other things that get in the way. 
I think it's a very fair point, and and I would totally agree with that. You do work with some of the best agencies in the world. Um, but I think one of the things that I heard you did, which I thought was a great idea, if I'm interpreting it correctly, was you you almost created a roadshow of best practices and best planners to almost treat the, it, it seemed to me when I read it that it was about sort of letting all of the, all of the uh, agencies that work with Diageo uh, get inspired by each other. Yeah. Uh, so, is it fair to say that you took you took maybe a planner from uh, from AMV BBDO and they went on a road trip to different agencies that work with Diageo to talk about how they work and talk about process, best practices, how to how to write the best brief? Is that a, is that the way to interpret that, or was it different? Yeah, there's a couple of things. One is yes, we absolutely um, consulted with our agencies to find out what would be the simplest and best approach to things like briefs and briefing. Um, and we codified that, and and we we deployed we deployed that in the business. I mean, we had because we've had the Diageo brand building, you know, instilled in our business since it came to into being twenty four years ago. A lot of that was updating and maintaining it. Um, so yes, you're absolutely right. We did bring agencies together and and get them to work with us and alongside each other in in just designing and making sure that what we were doing was right for us and right for them. And then the other thing that we did um, was to use them to inspire our teams with the best brand case studies. So um, we invited into the building when, in fact, when we when we used to go into offices, um, uh, people to come and do case studies, which we would um, film, package up, and then enable our marketers across the world to see. And, and we were doing that not only in London, but in in New York and and uh, Lagos and and Sydney and other places, and so we created a rich vein of internal content with some of the most interesting uh, case studies, um, and and then continue to to you know any time a, uh, a significant set of awards would come out like IPA or, or CAN, we we package that up and and present it to our in market team so that they could. You know, run sessions, uh, build people's understanding of ideas, and and look at different case studies. One or two brand examples you could you could share that kind of point to the the way the system has made a difference in terms of uh, effectiveness from a marketing perspective. Yeah, you've. I mean, you've you've had some of the most uh, obvious ones uh, on the uh, on the podcast, but I think there are lots of different types of impact. So. You know, some brands, if, if you again remember our, the complexity of our world, 200 brands, lots of different environments. When we started to, to kind of implement this, it was clear that we've got, you know, brands actually that didn't have or that had a real opportunity to drive more effective marketing. And for some of those, that was really about looking at the brand strategy and the creative strategy and, 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 and going back to basics. And in other cases, Actually, the big ahas were about media optimization. So seeing that, you know, something that was working in, in one region was was working brilliantly, and therefore you could scale it in all regions of that of that country and, and drive dramatic change. And then in some instances, uh, you know, Guinness is a great example of this. In some of its markets in Western Europe, it's highly effective, really, really world class return on investment and and uh, profit contribution for marketing. And so that was really about just nurturing and 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 getting more incremental gains from that and and 
and and really tinkering with it. So that there were there were a broad range. Um, I think for me, one of the great examples actually is Bailey's because in in Bailey's you can see all of those macro and micro changes coming to pass. So um, you know, in the last kind of five years, we've changed the the ultimately the brand strategy to being um, something which is sees the brand playing in adult treating. Um, versus where it was initially, you know, uh, sold as an, al- an alcoholic liqueur, really focused on Christmas with big blockbuster TV, um, into uh, into into that adult treating brand where we've um, changed the creative, we've then changed the formats of the creative, we've changed the media channels that we've used. Over time, we've we've changed the types of execution. So we've gone from you know, if you like, uh, ideas built around sixty seconds to. 10 and 15 second executions and multiple touch points. Um, we learn each year something new, maybe about serve, about align, aligning our ideas with below the line. Um, we've learned about the kind of semiotics in the brand world. And so Bailey's is a great example where we've, I think year on year, addressed those micro and macro level learnings and, and driven top line improvements in, in our return on investment. And actually, Smirnoff is 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 another similar example where I think the the suite of these tools, how they came together, as I think I mentioned earlier, enabled us to work out how the advertising and the other growth drivers were were really cutting through, and to really focus on the things that we knew from the data sets had the potential to deliver the biggest change in ROI. So it's almost like bringing together that creative mindset with the more analytic mindset and and seeing possibility in that and that one can help inform the other without without causing a, a big a big contrast do you have a sense on whether the sort of creative um ad, the advantage that's that's uh, achieved by better creative ideas is has contributed to the success of this program, or do you think it's more about more of the the uh, um, I'm trying to think of uh, maybe marketing catalyst side of the yeah. equation? Does that make sense? It, it, it does, and it's a really good question because, of course, the reality is, I think um, the the data and the technology hasn't told us what to do on the brands. It's helped us make the impact of what we're doing on the brands better, and so this doesn't exist in a vacuum it doesn't it can't tell you i can't do it can't give you brand strategy it can't tell you what the right approach to creative is but it can help you learn and it can help you apply that in a in a much more effective way so as we wrap up here we're we're in sort of uh we're four to five years in uh to this program and to this tool tell us about um tell us about the results Obviously, there was a goal of 100 million pounds in three years. What was the ultimate ROI, and and then we'll talk about what were the key learnings. Yeah, well, I'm I'm pleased that we smashed um, our targets. Um, we more than uh, doubled our initial um, financial target, which was which was amazing, and that enabled Diageo to um, smash its own total business target um, when it went back. Uh, went it back to to investors, which was really gratifying, and we delivered everything on time and to budget. And as a result, the ROI of the whole program 
when you include everything that we spent on um, the technology build and, and the incremental people resource and, and partners and, and econometrics and so on was 16 times. So with an ROI of 16 pounds per pound spent, I reckon it must be uh, one, of, one of our best uh, investments is as an, an engine of driving marketing growth alongside all of the other things that, that we did. Um, so it was, you know, it was successful and it was very hard work to get it to be successful. And, and it was, I was very fortunate to work with an amazing team of people, not just in my own team, but in, in the markets to, to make that result happen. One of the reasons I wanted to do this show is because I think that I think that everybody's struggling with this sort of enterprise solution. Everybody thinks it's an yeah. ideal, has it as an ideal. Uh, it's and I think that marketing as a function is not respected uh, in the way that it is at Diageo, and in terms of its ability to really move shape a business both now and in the future. Um, so I'm wondering, as we wrap up, can you give us a couple of lessons learned or advice you might give? To other people that are that are running um, large organizations that want to implement this, what are the what are the key lessons they need to keep in mind? What's the advice you would give? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a, a couple of things. One, one is around you talk about just kind of enterprise wide systems. So there's definitely something around uh, cha- effective change man- management. So I, for me, it was ensuring that it was a clear link to business objectives, having a financial target which creates a positive tension in the organization, putting a lot of effort into communication and and seeing the cultural change element as important as any technology elements and thinking really about how you design it with your user and audience in mind so you make it simple for for people to get behind and and use. And I guess recognizing that you don't have to have a um, a fancy piece of kit to to do it in all environments, as I think I said earlier, because of the complexity of ours, it was attractive to do so. But having the right KPIs, the right learning tools, the might, the right mindset, and the right light processes and focus are really the key things to um, to drive better returns from from your marketing overall. And I do think there's something really important. It really resonates with me. Your your part of your question around you know, marketing and is marketing taken seriously? And I think being able to articulate the outcome of what we do in in financial terms, really simply, is very important. And be able to talk as well about why how creativity creates value rather than being something as an end in and of itself is really important as well. And that means as a marketer, you are playing to what your functional strength is, you know, in driving consumer-centric growth through the brands, but in a way which enables you to uh, connect that to what motivates your broader business stakeholders. And I, I think there's something really important in, in protecting and celebrating what's brilliant and at the core of what marketing does, but us getting much better in our ability to influence and persuade people who ultimately make the decisions about resources and and um you know and how much is available to grow the brands and and believing that that marketing money is effective or not yeah i'm i'm um i'm reassured when i see an increased emphasis and embrace of marketing effectiveness awards 
Um, this year will mark the first uh, year for WARC having effectiveness awards. Um, it's great to see the FEs. It's great to see uh, mm -hmm. IPA. And 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 I and I I think we're beginning to hear a lot more about effectiveness as being something that agencies aspire to, uh, both in Europe and in the U.S. And and I think that's that can only be good. Yes, I really wholeheartedly agree. Thanks again to Andrew Gagan, Global Consumer Planning Director at Diageo. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Fergus. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.